Again, let me say to you, welcome and good morning. And today is an exciting day. We have reached the conclusion, the end of this series. It's been a series all about assurance of salvation. The series has been called That You May Know. And it is a series from 1 John. Turn with me today to 1 John chapter 5, and we'll look at verses 13 to the end. 13 to the finish. And perhaps this is the most exciting part of the series because here he shows you what all this confidence is good for. Okay, so you can know, so you can have assurance of salvation. But what is that assurance good for? Now, while you're turning to 1 John 5, 13, really astute listeners, give yourselves a gold star if you just had this thought. If you thought, wait a minute, He's skipping verses 6 through 12. You get your pastor's full admiration and appreciation if you notice that. If you didn't, now is the time to look at me and be like this. So I'll think that you thought that you noticed. But if you're worried I'm skipping verses 6 through 12, fret not. I'm not skipping it. I'm setting it aside. And it's going to be the text for my Good Friday message this Good Friday. Because the themes of 6 through 12 are perfect for Good Friday. So don't worry. We'll, we'll, we'll touch them all. But here we go, verse 13. Uh, he, he gets to the point, and John does this. John is great. For any of you who have ever had a conversation with somebody, and you got to the end and you said, man, will you, just try, will you just say what you're trying to tell me? Will you just get to the point, what are you trying to tell me? John does this, both in his gospel and in the letter. And here he comes to the point. Here's why I wrote this letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's telling them, this is for believers. Why? That you may know that you have eternal life. Didn't he do the same thing in his gospel? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth gospel. In the gospel of John, he writes all about these seven signs of Jesus. The the, the, the miracle at the the wedding at Cana and and the, the healings and the raising of Lazarus. And he writes all this stuff. He writes about how he's crucified, dead, buried, and on the third day rose from the dead. And he gets to the end of the gospel in John 20, verse 31. And he says, almost the same way, he says, look. Jesus did a lot of other things as well. Like he freely admits, I left out, for example, all of Jesus' teenage years, you know? I left out all of Jesus' 20s. But, but, but I, I, so he did a lot of other things even when I was with him in the ministry with him. But I wrote these things, and he tells you why. He said, I wrote these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's saying, this is why I wrote the gospel. Here it is. Here's the evidence. I was there. I saw it. Now, will you place your faith and trust in Jesus, right? So hearing, you may believe. Believing, you may live. You may have eternal life. And now this, years have passed. And he writes this letter. And he says, oh, and there's one more thing. Hearing, you may believe. Believing, you may have life. And for all you who believe, I want you to know. Hearing, you may believe. Believing, you may have life. And living, you may know. Those of you that have eternal life, I want you to know. Now, what's the value? Here he's about to unpack. Okay, but what's the value of assurance? What's the value of knowing? Well, let me start with the most obvious thing in the world. And he says right here, that you may know what? That you have eternal life. If anybody tells you that there is anything more important than figuring out what happens after we die, they're lying to you. That's it. You understand? That, that, 
that is a big deal. That should be a big deal for everybody. We are, you are delusional if you think, well, I know, I, death's inevitable, but I, I don't have to think about that now, or I, I shouldn't take any care. for Your soul will live forever. Your soul will live forever. Ponder that. And it will live forever either connected to God in, 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 in the place God designed for you to be, heaven, or a place you were never designed to be, hell, eternally separated from God. That is the result. If you don't deal with that, you are missing the central question of human existence. So, so the first assurance, the first reason is you got to nail that down. you got to know you have eternal life. But John says there are benefits of knowing that that are granted to us now, here on earth. Uh, it's not just that we are, okay, so now I know I'm saved. The whole point of this series was to know you're saved. And yes, that's the most important thing. If you don't know you're saved, get saved today. But if you go through this whole series and you go, okay, so now I have assurance of salvation. Okay, I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die. So now what? Am I just supposed to luxuriate in the bubble bath of Christian assurance? Huh? I mean, is it good for nothing here? John says, oh, no. Look, if I go to Walmart and I buy a bunch of stuff and I pay with a $100 bill, they do at least, they do a little uh, a counterfeit test. You ever see this? They pull out some sort of marker. I don't know what they do, a magnifying glass or something. But they check. And if it's real, then you get to go on with your transaction. Well, if that happens, I don't turn to my kids and go, it's real. Daddy doesn't have to go to jail. <laughs> we might could celebrate that. But the point is, I want that $100 to actually purchase something. The confidence is not just in the confidence I know it's real but in what it offers right now, here and now. So John says, hey, so if, if you're a note taker, here are four fruits of assurance, four results of this confidence, four benefits from all this that can, you can take hold of right now. A fresh assurance in prayer, a fresh hatred of sin, a fresh attitude toward the world, and a fresh awareness of God, a brand new assurance in prayer. Listen, it, this, this series has gone, it kind of got away from me. This series has gone 12 weeks. Can we go back and put all four up at one time just so folks can write them down? This series has gone 12 weeks. And uh, uh, it's almost like, could we take a before and after picture of your soul before this series and after? This would be my prayer. That now that this series is done, you look at the before and you go, I've got a sense of revival in my life. I've got a new assurance of prayer. This assurance has brought, this confidence of my salvation has brought a fresh assurance in prayer. I've got a whole new attitude towards sin. I hate sin. I don't want anything to do with it. My desires are starting to change. And I'm starting to look at the world a little different. I've got a new attitude toward the world. And most of all, I've got a fresh awareness of the reality and the presence of God in my life. That's what John says is available. So here we go. Let's get right to it. I hope that you'll see. What, 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 what is the difference we would notice? A fresh assurance in prayer. Look at verses 14 to 17, and you'll see the first blessing that comes from this assurance that you are saved is in prayer, both prayer in general and specifically in what's called intercessory prayer, where you're praying for another person. Let's look first at prayer in general. Verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask, that's prayer, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears it. Christian, part of the confidence, a confident assurance. We can just stay on verse 14 for a minute. Part of the confident assurance is that 
you are reminded, as you read 1 John, you're reminded in a fresh way, you can approach God's throne of grace boldly. Can I put it this way? When it comes to prayer, you've got freedom of speech with the Heavenly Father. Isn't that something? With the high king of the universe, you can go to him. You can approach the throne of grace. And look at the promise. He hears us. Uh, that means it registers with him. He, it hears doesn't just mean, you know, I hear, but, but he hears us favorably. Now, I know there are some children in here, kids, on behalf of parents everywhere. I'd like to just, on behalf of all parents, ask a little bit for your forgiveness. Sometimes when we parents are in the kitchen and we're distracted by so many things, maybe we're even on our phones, and you come in and you want to ask us a question, and in your mind, it's the most important question in the world, but to us, it's not important. <laughs> and I remember as a kid how this felt. Maybe some of you were like me. I remember how it felt, and that's why I'm asking for your forgiveness. I remember to go in and asking, Mom, Mom, can Jimmy come over? Mom, Mom, can Jimmy come over? And so you wait forever, and forever as a kid is 13 seconds. But you're not getting any response. What are you supposed to do? And so what do you do? Every kid knows this. What do you do? Finally, you've waited as long as you can wait. Mom, can Jimmy come over? And to which mom explodes by saying what? I heard you the first time. To which every kid goes, well, you knew you heard me. But how did I know you heard me? You gave me no indication that you heard me. I can't decipher a grunt. I don't know what this means. How was I supposed to know? Hey, to every one of God's kids, can we all agree? Can we all celebrate? Can we all rejoice? God is never distracted. God hears you. God is never going to get mad at you and yell down from heaven, I heard you the first time. He not only hears, but he answers. And he answers favorably. Now, of course, there is a condition, and this condition is the same wise condition that any loving parent would put in if we ask, did you see this? According to his will. I'll leave it to you to go do further study on this. And there's plenty of verses in the New Testament. The prayer must be by faith, Matthew eleven twenty four. 24. It must be offered in the name of Jesus, John 14, 14. It can offer by those who abide in Christ, John 15. James says it. We, we can't ask when we really just want to gratify our own selfish passions. Psalm 66, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord, wouldn't have, the Lord would not have listened. That's just obvious. That little according to his will some people say, well, that's just so God has an out, you know, if it doesn't. Have. Let me tell you, according to his will is not for God's protection, it's for ours. See, if we didn't, if he gave us everything we asked for, be honest, some of us would be in a world of trouble. Only God knows enough to have the power to give us what we need when we need it. So we ask according to his will. But the point, but the headline there is, he'll, he hears us and he, he'll answer. Verse 15, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, watch this, we know we have the request that we've asked of him. Whew. 
this is an incredible promise in the New Testament. This is an incredible truth about God and prayer. Underline this. He hears you, and listen, once he hears you, it's as good as answered. Let me say that again because we don't believe that. Once he hears it, it is as good as answered. You can mark it down. Let me explain it this way. God never leaves any prayers in his inbox. How many of you uh, have an email inbox that is perfectly cleared out? You clean out, archive, and delete any old messages, and you've got a perfectly inbox zero. Okay, a couple of you. How many of you, show of hands, have like 11,000 emails in there, and you have no clue what's in there? Okay, all right, all right, yeah. How many of you are under 30 asking, why would anyone email? What is email? Okay, I see it. Yeah, yeah. Well, some of you are old enough to remember actual inboxes, actual in trays. In the old days, your desk would have three trays on it. There would be an in, one's labeled in. That's incoming work. That's letters that need to be, correspondence, work orders, all that stuff would pile up. And then when you answered it dutifully, you would put it in the out tray and that would go out to the mail that would be correspondence that you know bills and invoices whatever that needed to go out and there was this dreaded tray in the middle between in and out anybody know what I'm talking about called pending pending and that's stuff that you just you'd love to respond but you've got to wait to get this invoice you've got to hear back from this contract you've got to and so stuff kind of languishes in pending it's not really in you've received it and it's not ready to go out it's just sort of pending you're waiting can I tell you something God has no pending tray listen to me in is out there's not even an inbox to sit in once you've prayed it he's answered why he's not waiting on anything what could God be waiting on how many of you are just getting you have to laugh at some point how many of you almost everything you order everywhere you go you're starting to get a warning sticker, a warning label. And the warning label basically says, lower your expectations. You're probably not going to get your order when it's supposed to arrive. Why? Because everybody says the same thing. Listen, be patient with us. We're trying, but everybody says the same thing. Why? Sup- say it with me. Supply chain issues, right? Everybody hear about supply chain issues. Some of you are in services where that is very real. You're going, Tom, I I can't deliver this stuff. I hear you. So everything, there's a warning label and it's smart. You're setting the expectation. You're saying, look, we're doing the best we can, but there are supply chain issues. It is annoying uh, for everybody involved. It is also a little, side note, a little confusing. It's making me really question my understanding of how goods and services are related because I'll ask for stuff and get like... (laughs) Can I have a Dr. Pepper? Oh, sorry, we don't have Dr. Pepper. You know, petroleum. I'm like, how much 10W30 is in a Dr. Pepper? Oh, I didn't know motor oil. Anyway. <laughs> but there's no supply chain. In fact, in fact, parents, maybe I helped out the kids. Maybe now I can help out the parents. Maybe that could be your new answer. No, Jimmy cannot come over. Sorry, supply chain issues. <laughs> My supply of patience. Can I, can I tell you something? Verse 15 is, this, this is the promise. God never has supply chain issues. You know why? He is the supply chain. Philippians 4, 19 says, my God shall supply 
all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so if, if his supply chain draws not from a world economy, if his supply chain is drawn from all the riches in glory in Christ Jesus, then his supply chain is inexhaustible. That's why we go to him in prayer. And when you ask, the answer is already out. I, I know that's tough to get your head around. One of the ways I have learned to pray and when you're ready, when you're ready, one of the ways, I think the best way to learn to pray is to go to Wednesday night prayer meeting and pray with people older than you that have been walking with the Lord a long time. And over time, you'll learn how to pray. At that prayer meeting, I have prayed, and there's a lady who often prays here in our church. She often prays with this phrase. And Lord, we come to you with this request, knowing that even before we finished asking, you've already begun answering. She prays that way. I learned that from her. She's right. It comes from 1 John 5, 15. She's absolutely right. So before you get to amen, he's already answered. You already have the answer. Now let me say this. We all know this. It may not be the answer you want, and it may not be in the time you want, but you got an answer, guaranteed. Ask him anything. Why? You've got the answer. The answer may be yes, and it may be immediate. Now, those we like. That's pretty cool. I don't know if you experienced that. The, you pray for something, and immediately that healing happens. This is the one, I tell you, how, um, you ever hear like a, these stories where a missionary will come back or something, and some miracle will happen, and you say, yeah, we were praying about that time. You say, wait a minute. What time did you pray for that? Because that miracle happened at 618. I was praying at 618. You know, those are, right? You've, you've heard of that stuff, right? The answer was yes, and it was immediate. Sometimes the answer is no, and it's immediate. It doesn't sit in the pending tray. It's a no. Why? For your good and his glory. Every time. If you would like to do a deep theological study of why God sometimes says no, there's a theologian. You'll need to, you'll need to deep dive but you'll need to listen to the song Unanswered Prayers by the theologian Garth Brooks. <laughs> and you'll rest your case. You'll be like, all right, that's good. I get it. I'm done. I'm sold. Smash the guitar and be on your way. Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is yes, but you won't experience it for some time. Yes, but you will not perceive that it was a yes months later. Some of you right now are walking under the blessing of God because of a prayer you prayed six months ago, and you've not made that connection. See, you thought it was a no, but it wasn't. It was the dreaded W word. It was a wait. Every wait from God is a yes disguised as a no. Every wait from God is just a yes disguised as a no. It's technically a yes, not yet. And every good parent knows why that's so important. When my 10-year-old asks, may I drive the car? The answer is technically yes, not yet. Yes, not yet. It's a yes. That's absolutely what I want for you. I'd love to be chauffeured around, but not yet. See? And finally, and this one's fun. I don't even have a category for this one, but sometimes the answer is yes, but not at all in the way you were expecting. And now when I just leave you to have fun with that, <laughs> that's called life. Now, all these promises result from assurance, and I've left myself very little time for the remaining three. But we press on, not just for prayer in general, but for times of intercession. One of the most desperate times of intercession comes, intercession means you're praying for another person. 
It's easy to pray for people. Uh, uh, it's easy to, I guess, see the need when they're sick or they're hurting. We do that a lot, intercessory prayer. Oh, but what about when they're struggling? They're backsliding. They're falling away. That, that one rips your heart out. And John says, okay, what do you do? Ask God on their behalf. Look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother, and this, of course, means brothers or sisters, committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Now, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there's a sin that does not lead to death. Now, we'll get to that business about the sin that leads to death. It's easy to get focused on that because it's a little obscure. Apparently, for John, this was an obvious thing, and for us, it's not so obvious. But the verse is a call to pray for someone, to pray for someone who is sinning. Uh, Let me just ask the most obvious question of all. Is that what we naturally do? Go back to verse 16. How would you fill in this blank? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall. Is that your first instinct? When you see somebody struggling, you see somebody sinning, he shall. I mean, for most of us, if anyone sees this, he shall turn a blind eye because who am I to judge, right? Or he shall turn a blind eye because am I my brother's keeper? How about this one? If anyone sees his brother committing sin, he shall point fingers. Yeah, she did wrong, but think about all the wrong that was done to her. Yeah, he messed up, but it's not his fault. It's this person's fault. We're going to blame somebody else. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall initiate gossip. <laughs> Isn't that one common? Well, I'm just sharing my heart. I'm just sharing my concern. I'm just, I'm, I'm just sinning. I'm gossiping. <laughs> right? Is it, is it not gossip if you only tell one person at a time? I mean, is that, is that, is that, that's pretty much, it's still gossip. Did you, or how about this one? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall bask in a feeling of superiority. (laughs) Uh, I think that one's so common because, and that's why the world does that so well. I think they love to see, especially they love to see prominent Christians, uh, uh, pastors and ministers caught in a terrible scandal. I think that they have a, a theology where God has a scoreboard and there's like only so many reservations in heaven and you have to have a really high score, and they figure pastors are automatically, I mean, that's a shoe in They got a really high score, but if they get knocked down, it's like, ooh, that opens up another spot, you know? I, that's all I can figure, why we would rejoice in, um, in the failings of another. John says, so there's whole books about how to respond, but John says the most obvious thing of all, pray. By name, pray for him. You ever done that? That is so easy to talk about, but to actually do it. In fact, a lot of those other concerns about gossip and looking down and and, and saying nothing would be solved. Why? Because when you pray for someone by name specifically, God help them. They're far from you. Their heart is hard. They're hurting. When you pray for them, it's very hard to be judgmental for somebody you're praying for. It's very hard to feel superior to someone you're praying for. You know what you feel when you pray for somebody? You feel compassion. That puts us in a good spot. So pray. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, verse 16, not leading to death, he shall ask, God will give him life. Now, there's a lot that could be said about this. Obviously, John, the way he talks about it, this would have been something so obvious to his listeners. Unfortunately, it's not obvious to us. A couple guesses on the sin leading to death. Uh, It could mean these are Christians, and it's talking about physical death, 
not spiritual death. Uh, I'm, here I'm thinking of like Ananias and Sapphira. Their sin got so bad, God just took them. Uh, I'm thinking of, in, remember that passage in 1 Corinthians where it says, because you've been eating the Lord's Supper improperly, you've not been discerning the body and blood. That's been the reason some of you have gotten sick and some of you prematurely, you died. You died before you were gonna die. Otherwise, God went ahead and took you home. You're still saved, but it's premature death. Um, and so it could be that. And that's dealing with believers. On the other hand, it could be, and this is kind of what I feel. It's just a hunch. I wouldn't fight you either way. My hunch is that um, this is sort of, this is dealing with unbelievers. I know he says brother, but he's used brother a little loosely in other places too. I think it's dealing with unbelievers. And I think this um, deals with the, uh, the hardening of a heart. And this, we don't like to talk about this. I don't like to talk about this. Nobody likes to talk about this. But like it's possible for a heart to grow so cold and corrupted to God that they can no longer hear the Spirit's call. If you say, Pastor, that's terrible and that scares you to death, then you've probably heard me correctly. That should scare you to death. Billy Graham used to say, there's no sin you can commit and take, take you beyond God's reach, God's forgiveness. He's absolutely right. There's no sin you can commit, take you beyond God's forgiveness, right? But he would also add, and I would too, uh, Isaiah 59, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. The ear of the Lord is not too deaf to hear. It's not God. It's you. you, you you've grown so hardened and so corrupted. That like, that, that's like the old-timey preachers used to scare me to death because they'd say, if the Holy Spirit speaks to you, you better say yes because if you say no, you get a little bit harder and a little bit harder and you don't know at what point you won't be able to hear him anymore. And that used to scare me to death. So I was kind of like, well, I don't know if we should say that anymore. Now I'm back to where they are. I think they're right. We should be afraid of corruption. Now, John is not saying forbid. If you think somebody is beyond, you know, that they can no longer hear, that's not for us to judge. That's why he says, I don't, I'm not saying you pray for that. He doesn't forbid it. And if you love somebody that you think's in that point, I'm not going to forbid you from praying anyway. I couldn't if I tried because your heart loves them so much. You're going to pray for them. But he's saying, look, it's kind of like what Jesus talked about, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, a continual rejection of salvation. A continual rejection of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, that's the one sin that can't be forgiven. Why? Because you're sawing off the branch you're sitting on. You're, you're turning, you're, you're refusing the one means of salvation that's being offered to you. And so I think that uh, uh, my takeaway from these confusing verses is just simply, uh, we should take seriously the possibility of a human growing so corrupt and hardened that they can no longer hear. Uh, the grace of God is, for any of us, our only hope. A fresh assurance in prayer. Let's move uh, quickly through these next two. A fresh hatred of sin. Uh, I, I say quickly because we've covered this ground before. This is what sin does to us. It leaves people open to the possibility of corruption. So sin is to be utterly detested. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. I think John brings this encouragement because he knows what hard-hitting verses, verses 16 and 17 are. So he reassures believers, look, <laughs> the evil one doesn't touch the child of God. It, um, uh, we know this stuff, everyone who has been born of God doesn't keep on sinning. We've covered this ground before. That doesn't mean Christian perfection 
it means the trajectory of your life is now toward God. Sin and the Christian may meet, but they're not going to live together anymore. Why? Because God has changed your desires. You no longer desire those sinful things. You desire God. You may still sin, but your heart's desire is fundamentally different. You think of sin no longer like you used to. You used to think of sin as that really fun thing that grumpy old God isn't letting you do. Now you realize sin is a cancer and I'm in remission. I don't want to go back. Sin is a prison cell and I've been sprung free. I don't want to go back. Your whole hatred towards sin and God protects you. Uh, uh, Philippians, Paul says, he who began a good work in you will complete it. How do I know? The evil one cannot touch you, Christian. Touch means uh, uh, hurt, can't get to you. Um, Why? John 10, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. Jesus has got you safe. So this assurance of salvation, so you can continue to hate sin, and yes, you can know you have the victory. A fresh assurance in prayer, a fresh hatred of sin, a a fresh attitude toward the world. Verse 19, we know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's classic John there, isn't it? Boy, John, you get the feeling, (laughs) John wastes no words and blurs no lines, (laughs) For those of you that are like black and white, yes, give it to me straight, pull no punches. John is your guy. He's like, yep, we're from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Uh, are, are, are you a born again child of God or are you not? John would say there's, there are only two choices and you need to be sure. It's either or. If someone tried to tell you that you can be a Christian without being born again, they were passing you counterfeit goods. Don't believe them there's only two families in the world, the blood-bought, born-again children of God and those that are lying in the power of the evil one. You need to be clear on a few things in life. That's number one. (laughs) Certain answers better be yes or no. If I come up to you and say, are you married? It needs to be yes or no. If you say, I don't know. You see, that's that's a red flag for everybody, right? This is yes or no. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Yes or no? And notice too, just one thing before we move on. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. They're not viciously trying to escape. They're lulled to sleep lying. There's no attempt to get out. So I want you to think about that. Almost like they're unconsciously asleep or even dead. So share with them. Don't get mad at them. Don't beat them up. They're literally lying in the power of the evil one. So share what scripture's on your heart. Share the good news as you meet with them. Tell them about how good God, why? Because as they're dead in their sins, God is alive and God is moving and the Holy Spirit may touch their heart and bring them to new life. And only God can do that. Your job is to witness. Put all the pressure on King Jesus. Let the Holy Spirit do his job. But they're lying. I, I, maybe even dead, asleep. There's no, there's no trying uh, to get out. So this is discouraging, of course. They're at, the world is acting like the world. But also remember earlier in 1 John where he said, but Jesus Christ is the propitiation of sins for the world. So there's hope for the world because of the gospel. Okay, 
Finally, a fresh assurance in prayer, a fresh hatred of sin, a fresh attitude toward the world, and a fresh awareness of God. I needed a better word than awareness, but it's the one you get. Uh, I wanted something a little stronger that like, to know that you know that you know God is what's real and everything else is a counterfeit God. Look at how he ends the letter. Of all ways to end a letter, I think this is great. And we know that the Son of God has come. He kind of sums up everything. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. You might paraphrase it this way. We know as a fact that the Son of God has given us understanding to come to perceive and know in experience him who is real. We not just know it, we've experienced him. And we are in him who is real. He is the true God and eternal life. That's pretty cool. The Spirit has been talked about as giving life. When Jesus was here on earth, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And now John says, God is life. So if you're keeping score, he's kind of put a bow on it over and over in this book. God is light, God is love, and God is life. Over and over, light, love, life, light, love, life. And here it is, God is life. So we know God is light, God is love, and here, eternal life. What's he saying? You gotta remember the author. John is saying, I was there, y'all. I was there. This isn't no hearsay or rumor. I saw him on Palm Sunday. Not the Palm Sunday y'all celebrate every year, like the Palm Sunday. John says, I was right there. I saw him on the cross. I saw him beaten and humiliated. And then in the upper room on Sunday, y'all, I saw him. I, I went running. I saw the empty tomb. I made my way back. I saw him in the upper room. He came. He appeared. I was there the next week. Thomas was back with us that week. And I saw him again. And then on the shores of Galilee, I saw him the risen Lord Jesus. So you dead Nazarene carpenter, who we believe is the very son of God. That's why I wrote my whole gospel. I'm telling you, I was there, I saw him. It's the realest thing in the world. And so everybody thinks his last verse, he's changing the subject. I'm telling you, he's not. It could not be more perfect. It could not be more on point. He is real. So the way he ends the whole thing, so little children, keep yourselves from idols. Accept no substitutes. Who are you trusting to save you? Listen to me carefully. An idol is anyone or anything that you trust to save you more than God. Who are you leaning on as your functional savior? An idol is anyone or anything that you will trust to save you more than God. If God is real, he's saying worshiping anything other than God is worshiping that which is false. An idol is anything you will trust, you will obey, you will revere, you will follow more than God. And he's saying you will never get assurance from an idol. How could you? If your idol is money and you say, if I have enough wealth, then I'll be okay, then I'll be secure. If that's what you're trusting in you, how much is enough? Hmm? You got a million? What about two million? You got two million? What about three million? Honestly, you probably need five million. Some of it better be in Bitcoin. Hmm? Five million, what about 10 million? And what about 20 million? Why? Supply chain issues. 
Keep feeding it. Keep feeding it. You have to keep supplying your idol and never get assurance. So make God your God, and he feeds you. And you'll always have assurance. Make youth and beauty your idol. How will you ever know? Have I done enough? Make health your idol. How will I ever know? What news will tomorrow bring? How can you ever have assurance if you're trusting in anyone or anything? How will you know if you're trusting in your own morality? Of course, I'll get to heaven when I die. I've been a good person. I never cheated on anybody, never did anything wrong. Oh, how can you have assurance if that's your hope of salvation, your own good deeds? How can that possibly give you assurance? It's false. It's fake. Some people ask me sometimes, you know, I, I, I talk about idols a lot because I don't, um, I don't ever ask whether people have rival gods. I assume we all do. They're hidden in every one of us. So the question is, how do we discern them? And there's several ways. Tim Keller's probably thought more about idols, at least as a modern writer. Uh, he's probably thought more about the nature of idolatry uh, than anybody I know. Uh, and he would say, well, one way is look at your imagination. What do you daydream about? One or two daydreams is not an idol, but what do you find that you continually go back to? Uh, Archbishop William Temple is credited, who knows if he says it, but uh, he says, uh, he's credited as saying, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Another way is how you spend your money. That one's common. People talk about that a lot. A third way is, is uh, 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 to ask, especially believers, okay, you say with your head you believe in God, but what's your real daily functional salvation and you know that how do you respond with unanswered prayers how do you respond with disappointments and frustrated hopes are you just sad disappointed and you move on hey life's not over those are not your functional masters but when you pray for something and you work for something and you don't get it and you respond with explosive anger or deep despair careful now you may have come upon a real counterfeit god a final test works for everyone what where are your uncontrollable emotions Just like a fisherman looking for fish goes where the water is roiling, look for your idols at the bottoms of your most painful emotions, especially the ones that might drive you to do something wrong. The most basic question, David Pollison writes, which God poses each human heart, has something or someone besides Jesus taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? To what or to who do you look for for life-sustaining stability, security, acceptance, What do you really want and expect out of life? What would really make you happy? What would make you acceptable? This can help us tease out Christ from false saviors as we discern. Well, idols uh, cannot simply be removed. Chuck's going to come and lead us in a time of response. We'll close here where John does on the thinking about idolatry. Idols can't be removed. I think we know that. You can't just say, okay, I'm going to get these idols out of my life. Simple as that, and they'll be gone. No, 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 no. Not removed replaced. What do I mean? When you uproot an idol, 10 more might grow in its place. So when you uproot an idol, you must plant the love of Christ there. Plant that gospel seed there or it'll grow back. You must preach the gospel to yourself again and again. The simplest answer to the end of 1 John, if you said, Tom, I came to the end of this and at the end, I'm I'm still convicted. I have this assurance of salvation, but my heart so easily goes after that which is false. What do I do? Well, Here's one thing you could do. You might just flip over. It took me two pages. Yours yours may be different depending on your screen. You might just flip over and start again. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, right? 
which our eyes have seen, which we've handled with our hands, that concerning the word of life, which we now proclaim to you, and we proclaim it, that our joy may be in you, and your joy may be complete, and this is the message we've heard from him, and now declare to you that God is light, and in him there's no darkness, and you just, just kind of, let's go back over it again, and again, it's going to take time, it'd probably take our whole life of sanctification in this journey, but that's how you do it, you don't, you don't just delete these idols you replace them you turn the old hymn says you turn your eyes upon jesus look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace it'll take a lifetime but we should keep at it why because john takes great pains to make sure that we may know Let's pray. God, we thank you that your good book has come to life, has confronted us, challenged me, and uh, uh, encouraged us just when we needed a word of assurance. God, uh, you've done uh, great things uh, throughout history through this portion of scripture i pray god for our moment in history that it does its good work in us and grants to every believer assurance of salvation for all these benefits and more but i pray for those that for whom this book was convicting they have no assurance whether they're here in this room or at the next service or watching this online one day that today would be the day of their salvation where they are convicted by your word they come under conviction and they receive you as lord and savior Let today be that day, God. Grant us either assurance or great conviction. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.